Today's podcast contains explicit language which may be offensive to some listeners. Your discretion is advised. You're listening to The Plate Up, a podcast for the food and beverage world from restaurants to bars, hotels and travel. My name is Hashan Piris and I'm the Corporate Executive Chef for Banyan Tree Hotels and Resorts. And I'm joined by my F&B counterpart, Sebastian Divaskaya, F&B Director at the one and only hotel in Mexico. And over the next hour, we are hoping to tackle some of the hottest topics in F&B, share some stories, go through our process, talk about the lessons we've learned and how to untangle some of the complexities in this industry. Well, while Sebastian spits his ice block back into his drink. Favorite activity. Welcome everyone and welcome to Chandler or the Chanaconda. Chandler, you're like the Eddie Bravo now of this, uh, of this podcast. I'm you're, our Eddie, you're, you're our Eddie Bravo. So, so we need you to say something controversial and inappropriate and probably badmouth us at the same time. I've never <laughs> been known to be inappropriate or controversial. Ever. <laughs> Ever. Okay, so uh, we have our first guest on. It's our episode 10, and we yes. finally got out. But we've got around to getting our first guest, not Eddie Bravo, but no. uh, Chandler, Better. who's going to better than eddie bravo chandler's gonna uh channel his inner eddie bravo and welcome to the plate up chandler yeah man i gotta admit something i'm not totally clear on who eddie bravo is oh sebastian will update you eddie bravo is you you know the joe rogan podcast right yeah yeah okay so eddie bravo is a friend of joe rogan uh, and he's very often on the on the podcast usually like a, a third guest and he's there just to throw random things into the conversation. He has some very strong opinions on things that have nothing to do with the topic. And um, so he's, he's good. He's comedic relief. He's the wild card. <laughs> he's the wild card. Exactly. That's, I, I couldn't go. explain it better. Okay. <laughs> For those that are listening, Chandler is not a comedian. No. Nor is he a jiu-jitsu fighter. (laughs) Chandler, introduce yourself, please. Say hello to everyone. Let us know. Let everyone know who you are. All right, cool. Um, What's the name of this podcast that we're on? It's called The the Plate Up. The Plate Up. (laughs) The Plate Up. Okay, what's up, everyone listening to The Plate Up? Uh, I'm Chandler Schultz. I'm a 30-year-old chef in the city of Bangkok, Thailand. Um, and I say I'm a chef, but I've been doing a lot of sitting at home lately. So I think a lot of us have, mm. uh, say so yeah, I've been invited to come and give my two cents on uh, whatever you guys are going to talk about. How, how is that going by the way now with, uh, the whole, with COVID, how is it affecting you guys over there? Um, our group specifically. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Or overall up to you. Overall, overall. Okay. Um, well, I mean, hey, Sean, you're in Bangkok, so I'm sure you you know that the uh, the restrictions are still pretty tight. Um, the restaurant group, which I'm involved with, still has not resumed our uh, normal operations. You know, for the first nearly month of this lockdown, we were doing the delivery thing, which was actually really cool in our case. Um, we have several restaurants and many chefs in our group, so we all got together in our biggest restaurant called Isaya, 
and we're doing this sort of um, daily creative menu from one or two of the chefs. And it was, it was cool. It was a nice sense of camaraderie. Um, we weren't making any money, but we were, we were getting some salary for our, for our cooks, for our dishwashers, for our service staff. But um, that turned out not to be sustainable. Mm-hmm. So for the preceding month or month and a half or whatever it's been, um, operations have been more or less shut down. Uh, some people in the city have chosen to reopen already. Some are strictly adhering to these um, to this structure that the government has put in place. Some are not so strict on it. But I think overall, um, nobody is super successful except for you know places that really kill it in the delivery game. Okay, but so it's it's interesting that you mentioned this and people, the, the businesses or the restaurants that are killing it in the delivery game, is it because they were already killing it before everything happened? I, I was about to ask the exact same thing. Were they always in the delivery game? Uh, mostly, yeah, I think so. Um, okay. You know, you see the people that are doing really well right now. It's It's comfort food. It's stuff that already had a well-established delivery um algorithm mm. you know your your pizza and your cheaper thai food um stuff that people are already ordering a lot i see so yeah and and that's one thing that we discussed with Heshan uh, previously is that the all the restaurants that just get got into the delivery game because of this situation they had years Uh, to make up for and and they had to establish themselves in a scene that was already very well established yeah i mean that's what we found personally you know just logistically if we're only talking about receiving orders to communicating drivers to packaging the food you know it's mm. it's a completely different ball game and yeah you know that going into it but yes. it doesn't matter when you've never uh, done this professionally mm. Mm. Interesting. What what about, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about your own history, Chandler, your background, where you staged at or where, where you worked at previously? So my first job cooking, I was 15. Um, I got a job in a really small family-run Japanese restaurant in my hometown of Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania, which is um, kind of a strange place to start cooking Japanese food. <laughs> But I was really lucky. Um, I found myself in a situation where it was just myself and these four kind of older Japanese ladies that ran the restaurant, uh, which is rare. Um, yeah. We were doing pretty authentic, pretty simple food. Uh, so it was a good start. You know, I not to put myself on a pedestal, but I didn't start like slapping sandwiches together at Subway. Um, oh, you were doing pretty elaborate things. Right, right. And well, I mean, not so much elaborate, but uh, precise. Um, and my my mentor there, Yoko, was, uh, she was Yoko. Uh, not quite, not quite. She didn't break up the Beatles. Um, okay. I wasn't sure. <laughs> but she did have some pretty high standards. So that was okay. that was a good way to cut my teeth. Um, let's see. 
I got in a bunch of trouble when I was about 18, so high school got cut short, and then I jump-started right into culinary school, uh, which was a good thing. Mm-hmm. I was a good year ahead of my initial schedule. Um, after culinary school, I worked a couple of different restaurants around my home in Harrisburg and Hershey, PA, and then my first kind of big break was when I decided to move to Delaware, um, another weird place to go for cooking. But I moved to this little town in the south of Delaware, uh, this seaside resort town. Um, and I I was actually living with for a time and opened a restaurant with a chef named Hari Cameron, uh, who's this brilliant, creative clusterfuck of a chef he's he's a great dude he's my brother but um we opened this restaurant called amuse where i eventually became sous chef and uh yeah we were doing really modern american mid-atlantic food um which if you don't know what that means there's yeah i was gonna say what is there's a purpose to that because it kind of means whatever we want Mm. uh which is the cool thing about american food you can like it, it's a melting pot, like they say. You can uh, use influences from all over the place, but we're really focusing on the products. So Mid-Atlantic is, as you can guess, um, this region where the restaurant was situated. So think a lot of fresh seafood. You know, we we're right on the beach um, yep. and a lot of woodland ingredients. So mushrooms and foraged herbs and this kind of thing. Um, so basically we're combining his modern style and a lot of forward thinking technique with these great ingredients. It was a, it was a really fun, fun place to be. Sorry. I was going to say, do you find that the, the American palate has refined to, uh, take on like this kind of innovative cuisine or is it still at its early stages? Uh, most definitely it's um it's much more accepted than it it had been say 20 years ago uh where people looked at this food as kind of uh hoity-toity kind of faggy um so i think what helped this a lot in america is honestly the food network um when you started to have shows like, you know, the early seasons of Top Chef back when it was actually a good good competition and a good program. Harold guy, Harold Dutry or whatever. Yeah, Harold Dietrich, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was season one. Again, season one one through three, they had like, they had real chefs there. They were really cooking well. And I remember watching that and I was like, these, I really enjoyed watching it. And I recently caught it just like, well, back in Australia, we had uh, Food Network was called Lifestyle. Uh, it was on the Lifestyle channel. It became then it became Lifestyle Food, and I remember that used to come on. But then recently, I caught it when I was at home, and it just looked like another Master Chef come, you know, Big Brother come The Bachelor. Right, and um, that's kind of a shame, but but. Uh... Yeah, in this era, you know, Bourdain was really at his peak and you had these very legitimate people. You know, you had less of a fucking Guy Fieri um, 
<laughs> vibe <laughs> for this like golden period. And it, it really did turn a lot of people on in America to um to what a cool dining experience can be. And they were interested to try new ingredients and uh yeah, yeah it it changed. Um and that that has continued in that you also, you also mentioned that uh, or, to, or to me that uh, Harry got a few awards. So he was nominated for Best New Chef for the James Beard Awards. Yeah. Um, so there was a lot of, of buzz and, and following around him and what you guys were trying to do at Amuse. And that was that was a great time because um, by the time the awards came out, I can't remember what month it was, but see in Rehoboth Beach, Delaware, it's a very seasonal town. So um, in the summer, you're just getting your ass kicked day in and day out, you know, a completely booked out restaurant. And then in the winter, the population drops to like a few hundred people. You don't have tourists anymore. So um, in effect, this just, it kills our, uh, our, our salary. You know, you, you don't have the money to pay for any cooks or dishwashers. So I remember this night very specifically because when it was just me and Hari doing all the work, doing all the prep and all the dishes at the end of the night, uh, even 12 or 15 covers feels like you're getting your ass kicked. Mm. And it was one of these kind of nights when the award was announced. So it was really, or the nomination, I should say. Um, it was really gratifying to see that us busting our asses was being recognized. Yeah, that's a that's uh, one. Yeah. Cool. Chandler and Sebastian, I guess uh, I'll throw this out to you now. Um, do you find now with the current COVID situation, does the industry have a clean sheet to begin again, you know, to take on some new regulations, uh, take on you know, really shake up the industry? Because I think for a while, and this comes back to what you said before about delivery, um, you know, everyone kind of stuck to the same true and tried formula and no one took the risk of really trying to shake it up and try something completely, like next level different. Now we're in a situation, and, and let's let's look at other industries, you know, when, when you had the, the 80s financial crisis, you know, um, let's look at travel industry, you know, airplanes and, you know, fuel costs were high and that so began the early stages of budget airlines. Um, we're in a new era now. Is it now a good opportunity or does the industry now have an opportunity to start off with a clean sheet and just shake everything up completely? It's a double-barrel question because I'm going to ask you something even more ridiculous after this. <laughs> Chandler, you want to go first, or you want to you want me to tackle that one first? Uh, sure, why not? Um, I think that I, yes and no. There's going to be some people that come out of this who are able to adapt and change their business model, and um, will exit even more successful. You know, maybe be able to even profit on this situation as as somebody always does um i don't think that's going to be a large percentage of of restaurant owners right now but 
a totally clean slate? I don't know. There will be, how should I say this? There will definitely be new opportunities. There'll be new gaps for people to fill. And I don't know if it will be, you know, catering to this public safety side of dining. If somebody can can make fe- make people feel more comfortable, but also give them the dining experience that they want. I mean, nobody likes what's going on right now with uh, servers and face shields and these plastic screens between diners. I mean, this this won't last one way or another for sure. Um, but somebody that can make you feel comfortable and make you feel catered to at the same time would be very successful. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, this is a really tricky one. Yeah. I think there's two ways to look at it. And the one thing is that everyone now collectively is thinking about what's the new normal. And which implies that in a way we want to go back to what we know as normal. And as you said, right, there's a lot of things that we have to do now in restaurants based on these guidelines that are not what you want in a restaurant experience. You're going to a restaurant to have a good time and, and you don't want to have a waiter that is dressed like a, a nurse. That's, that kills the, the, whole, the whole experience. Even well, if it's some, same, restaurant, some restaurants may actually go for that. Yeah, but, and, and I understand. I mean, it's necessary now, but this is not what you're looking for uh, in a restaurant. On the <laughs> other hand, clean slate, I, I think there are too many things involved. It's too deep because so restaurants, restaurants have been operating for hundreds of years. The model of a restaurant is pretty similar. What would change so, is the whole thing that is around, under, and above restaurants. Okay, so I'm going to read you this statement. Celebrity chef Luke Mangan. Now, I know Luke Mangan because I worked in his restaurant when I was uh, in Sydney. Celebrity chef Luke Mangan has taken a different approach when reopening Luke's Kitchen restaurant in Sydney, suburb of Waterloo. The restaurant offers a only a set menu which must be prepaid by customers before their reno- reservation. Mm. Luke has come out and said, basically, our hospitality industry has a clean sheet of paper. We can do some changes. You book and pay before you fly. You book and pay a hotel room. Why can't this happen in a restaurant? Yeah, but that's not new, Hishan. Sorry to say. Uh, Japanese restaurants have been doing this for years. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Fine dining restaurants have been doing this for years. Well, no. Where, where have you seen them find dining restaurants prepaying your meal before you sit down? Like, try okay, to maybe a table okay. at Alinea in Chicago, you have to buy a ticket. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah, don't, don't pronounce it Alinea. You, come on. That was Alinea, wasn't it? <laughs> it is Alinea. Alinea. That's a Mexican restaurant. I am, I am 90% sure that this word was French at some point in its history. And it, <laughs> And it's going to be pronounced Alinea. I'm going to get Grant on the phone and we'll, we'll get him in this. Get him in this Zencast. <laughs> we'll ask you him. Got, you got Grant. You got, you got access to Grant. Let's get Grant, man. <laughs> how do you say his surname, by the way? Because he's got a... A cat. I, I think it's Akats. Akats? A cat. <laughs> let's let's oh. call him and ask him these two questions. <laughs> Sebastian well, is... Okay. Is the uh, the added pump on your podcast, huh? Well, yes. <laughs> um, no, well, 
Okay, you're, I know, I understand because I think uh, when um, El Bui existed, it was the same situation. And I think Tickets, which is their, um, the other restaurant they have, has the same system. But we're talking about three Michelin star world's top 10 level restaurants. Yeah, right. Well, yeah, yeah. Luke's in Waterloo is probably not even in the top 10 in Sydney. Right, and that's that's. I'm not trying to disrespect the guy, right? Um, maybe it is, but I don't think it is. I think it's a completely different uh, setup. Now that's why I'm asking. You know, let's. And I think when discount, like it is disrupt. It's a disruptive tactic. I somewhat agree with it. I think it's why not. I think you know for a long time. Not a long time. Recently, everyone kind of people are starting to adjust to social distancing, the new normal, right? People are just starting to accept the new normal as well. This is how life will be. I kind of think this could be how life could be, and I don't think it's you know people are more worried about how uh, customers will react, but realistically, you well, know, I I think that you would be hard pressed to find a sh a chef. And when I say chef, I'm speaking of a chef owner or a restaurant owner that would not be in favor of having the exact number of guests prepaid for each one of his open meal periods in advance. That is like a godsend to everyone because you control your portions, you can control your manning, you know exactly how many guests are going to come in, you know how many waiters you need, you know how many chefs you need, you know how many dishwashers you need. You everything mm -hmm. is so that's the advantage of prepaid and pre-booked, uh, and and a lot of people because we have fast food and we have casual restaurants they don't understand that you work with perishable products. So if you don't know how many people are going to come in in your restaurant, well you 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 guesstimate, so you make your purchases according to that, according to trends and averages. But you there's either you run out of things before you finish serving the last guest or uh, you have stuff that is left over and it gets spoiled or you are serving, you're using a subpar ingredient the next day and, and to serve your guests. So I think getting people to pay in advance and to, to book in advance and to confirm their booking, I think it's great for restaurants. They can focus on super on, on to be much more detailed and much more efficient. Um, that's my take on I mean, that's all very well and good in theory, but you have to imagine what what the guest tolerance of this is. I mean, that's if you think of, if you talk about a meal like, like Alinea or like El Bulli, you know, <laughs> this is something that people plan out for months in advance, yes. possibly, you know, yes. a year in advance. Um, and they're very committed to, but... Right. I, if I just want a, you know, if I want to meet up with Sebastian Heishan at Appia, um, mm. I might not be willing to make that that uh, commitment that in a week, you know, my plans aren't going to change and I'm not going to be fucking flaky um, and True. still have to pay for that meal. On the other hand, as well, there is one part, uh, for, and I'm speaking personally, and I'm sure it applies to many people, including both of you. One, one of the joys of going to a restaurant is to have an a la carte menu where you have choices and you get to ah, discover the menu. 
Whereas if you prepay a set menu in advance, this is what you get. So great, but you don't have the sense of discovery. Anymore. There is no perfect system. It's just that it, if you look purely at the theory and the, the efficiency of it, obviously a, a pre-booked, pre-paid meal is, is perfect. And to, to take the example of the Japanese omakase restaurants, they can't function otherwise because they make their fish orders based on the bookings they have in advance. And that's why they open bookings only one month in advance so that they can plan their orders for the fish to be flown in. And if someone doesn't show up, well, they have to absorb the cost of that fish because they can't keep it forever. So it depends. Yeah, McDonald's can't function like this. <laughs> <laughs> You're not going to buy a ticket online to go and get your... <laughs> Your mac and they cheese. make you well. They kind of make you do it at the shop now. Actually, I think you can do it. You know, speaking of fish, now we're going to go on a complete three hundred and sixty. <laughs> can I say something before you you go on a complete three hundred and sixty? Chandler, have you? Did you see that? Uh, you're going to criticize me now for misspelling his name, but I don't care. Josh Needland won um, the James Beard Award for best book for his whole fish cookbook. Uh, Mr. Nyland, yes. Nyland. I don't actually. I'm not sure if that's correct. Hey, Sean, you're the Aussie. How do you say his name? Nyland. Nyland. Is it Nyland? I I would call him Nyland. Okay. Um, I saw that, and it's well deserved. His book is fucking amazing. Yeah, it's mind blowing. Can I say fucking on here? I know I already did a few times. We try and not, but it's not. <laughs> Okay, sorry it will, about it will that. Be a, it will be a Chandler-only episode. Um, okay. Every time Chandler comes in, we'll do a public disclaimer. They might be the, strong. The M-rated um, episode. <laughs> um, speaking of fish, Japanese fugu. Ah, mm -hmm. yes. Is it all that? Is it really all that? So, there's two ways to look at this again. There's flavor and there is rarity sorry there's three ways and then there's technique so fugu is a japanese puffer fish or blowfish uh, it has a lot of toxin sacs it has a neurotoxin that uh, can kill it's extremely potent so if you if you get uh, that toxin into your body it just stops your heartbeat immediately or near immediately it's very very strong and uh, it's a delicacy and a rarity in, J in Japan and in the rest of the world. So fugu is, a, is considered a, a white-fleshed fish. And it is usually, in Japan traditionally, consumed around New Year's. Um, that's the season. It's the cold, the cold season. And so taste-wise, my opinion, it, it doesn't blow your mind. It's, it's very a, bland. It's very bland. It's quite tough in terms of texture. It's usually served in sashimi. But what makes it a big deal, and I think what it's not explained enough, is that a chef who prepares fugu needs, on top of his already extremely long and, and uh, very tedious uh, mastery of the sushi art and the certification of that, you need an extra certification by the Japanese government that you can cut up, prepare fugu in a safe way. Because if you give the wrong uh, knife cut, 
you might pierce uh, one of the toxin pouches without knowing it, and you might kill uh, your potential customer. So it's a high risk, uh, little reward <laughs> type of fish. Yeah, this is something that I've eaten several times as well um, in various parts of Japan. And I've never been blown away by strictly the, the flavor or the texture. Yeah. Uh, as Sebastian mentioned, it is quite tough. Even sliced relatively thin in sashimi, it it bites back a little bit. It's it's uh, a little chewy. And um, yeah, pretty bland. And you see just how enamored Japanese people are with it, which is interesting. Um, but yeah, it does have to do with this this lore of fugu. Chatter, do they love it as much as the whale blubber? <laughs> they do love whale. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know. I'm not Japanese. I can't answer that. You know, okay, so I'm going to tell you something. It's Josh Nyland. Nyland, yes. And I know Josh. I worked with this guy. What? No, no, sh- no way. Hishan, no way. This is, I just, this is classic Hishan. I've spoken to Hishan about this for months. And today, he <laughs> never came up. Wait a minute. I know this guy. <laughs> because, because, can I just say? <laughs> because I, looked, I just looked at this guy's photo and I'm like, hang on. Didn't I work with this guy in Sydney? Right. So I just typed in Josh Nyland resume. And it comes up, he worked with the best runter and learned from the best from Peter Doyle to Luke Mangan. And Luke Mangan, I just told you I worked at his restaurant when we were yeah. in Sydney. <laughs> so for everyone who listens, whenever you speak to Heshan about something, it will take him a few weeks to digest the information before he looks it up. But he will <laughs> tell you that he's listening to you. So Heshan, yeah. I, I gather you have not read the whole fish cookbook? No, no, I haven't. Amen. You gotta get a copy. But this guy, even then, I remember what because I looked at his picture and I'm like, man, I'm sure this guy I worked like he looks like a guy I remember. Um, and yeah, that's that's the guy. That's yeah, he looks like he's about 22 years old. I don't know what kind of voodoo he's performing. No, he's 30, isn't he? 30, 30 years old or something. Yeah, yeah, he's 30. It's all the fish he's eating. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, there, you there you go. Yeah, it's gotta be. Um, now, uh, talking about, um, but is, is it worth the price to pay for coming back to Fugu? Is it worth it? Or is it just, you're just paying for? I think it has mystique. The, and everything else, like the mystique. Yeah. yeah. Okay. You're paying for the mystique. You're paying for the celebration because it's eaten usually uh, in the time for celebration. It's expensive because of the, the mastery of the preparation, of the, the work behind but if you're just thinking about, am I getting, am I getting the flavor and the the mouthfeel that justifies the price tag I had to pay? My answer would be no. Okay. Yeah, I'm in agreement there. But I have but a quick I anecdote um, talking about paying the price for fugu. So apparently, uh, in post-war Japan, when the country was quite devastated, you know, there was a huge uh, home, homeless population in the cities in Japan. So many, many of these people, you know, they might be able to get rice to survive on, maybe, or they would have nothing. 
So a lot of people were eating uh, scraps from restaurant garbage in big cities of Japan. So there's this huge, um, this huge issue which was going on: this pandemic of people dying from fugu toxin because oh, they're no. eating this oh, contaminated no. garbage, this restaurant waste, and then they were uh, yeah, falling prey to this toxin and dying in the streets. So is it worth that price? Certainly not. No. But what the part of all this that I find quite amazing is, you know, how did they ever work out that process? You know. But that's just an error. Yeah, trial and error. You know, and then to break down, you know, the sperm sac is supposed to be the 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 mate like the, the best part of it, isn't it? Isn't that what they regard as the persist Petite, what is it, Sebastian? Piece of resistance, right? Piece de resistance. There you go. My French is never good. Neither is the my French. Shirako is the sperm sac in Japanese. Yeah. Um, I think that one's specifically card, no? Um, no, well, yeah, true. Shirako is, is card uh, sperm sac. So uh, the term of the fugu sperm sac uh, eludes me at the moment. <laughs> Chandler, did Yoko Ono train you on this at all when you were doing your Japanese restaurant back in the No, day? B- believe it or not, we weren't serving a lot of fugu in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. <laughs> Any sperm sex? Uh, no, again, you know, Top Chef took us so far, but the American palate was not quite ready in, uh, in 2005. <laughs> Maybe it was great. You know, maybe maybe New York, maybe LA, but not in the Appalachian Mountains where I'm from. <laughs> now, last week I asked Sebastian to bring Judge Divskaya to the podcast today. Can I just confirm Judge Divskaya is at the podcast today? He is in the house. He's in the house. Now, uh, Chandler, I'm just going to just run past an article with the judge. Mm. While I have uh, think of that, oh, can I just ask you to think of your five most overrated ingredients, right? Because you might need a bit of time to think about this, and then you might I might get your opinion on this uh, comment. There have been a few issues back around in Australia where now restaurants are limited in the amount of guests they can have. So some restaurants are locked into 10 to 20 guests at a time. Now, there has been situations or uh, incidences where a table of six doesn't turn up for dinner, thus cutting out over 25% of your revenue for the night. There's been a little bit of a uh, debate whether they should name and shame these people. Judge, what did you? What's your judgment on this? Is this a yes or a no? What is your thoughts? My thought on this is that if a chef has to slam his customers because they didn't show up, my strategy or my my philosophy is always look at what you do yourself first before you blame anyone else. And so, if if I see that a chef is ranting online that he lost 60% of his revenue because a table of six didn't show up. Okay, I can understand it. As you said, and it circles back to what we said earlier, 
in these times, you operate in a very different scenario. And when you had maybe 100 seats available in your restaurant that you could fill up, maybe now you have 20. So obviously, uh, your, your revenue potential is much smaller. So you're much more careful about what, the, what about the money that comes in because you have to pay bills and you've been without work for the last two months and you have a lot of frustration built in and uh, you, you care about your team and about your suppliers and everything. So sure, if a table of six books and they don't show up, it's a huge dent. It sucks. But on the other hand, did you do your part of the job? Did you inform and communicate to guests? Hey, please, we have a cancellation policy because this and this and this is happening, because we're struggling, because if you don't show up, I'm not sure I can refill that, that table and I will lose the revenue. Um, did they install, install a, I don't know, a cancellation policy? Like if you don't show up, I take 50% of the deposit that you made or the, the potential bill or a flat amount. I don't care. Did you do all of that? Because people don't realize, you know, you, you, we've done it a million times. You, you book a restaurant and uh, sometimes something comes up and you're caught up in the moment and, and you don't show up or an emergency came up and, and you don't show up, you don't call. So from the other side, as well as a guest, uh, the, the courtesy obviously is to call and say, hey, I'm going to be late or I'm not going to be able to come. And at least you, you give time to the restaurant to, to try and, and get another table to replace that, that loss of revenue. But I think the responsibility lies in both, on both sides. The, the, the restaurants also need to be clearly communicating about the issues that they're facing. And, and if you try to, to involve people in what you're doing, you will get much better results. And, and venting your anger on internet is not going to help anyone. It's happened twice. Well, it's happened many times, but two have really come out. One has come out and said that they deserve a special place in hospo hell <laughs> Judge. Man, just relax <laughs> so, okay, so the hospitality. we've said it before Hishan. we are in hospitality we are here to welcome guests make them feel safe and make them feel comfortable that's our job and uh, if you get upset at your customers, then you're, you're maybe not in the right business. And I understand the times are difficult, but again, did you do your part of the job? Yeah, yeah. So now I'm going to write from the opposite side. So this is another article that came out it's from Milky Lane Restaurant, and they slammed customers leaving horrible reviews. And one of the statements they made is on their Facebook, if you walk into our restaurant, someone else's or any commercial premise and you see some mistakes, don't reach for your phone to record it or take some pics to upload on social media. Ask for the owner, get get Karen, you know, or the Karens, get Karen yeah. to speak to the manager. <laughs> Let a supervisor or your wait staff member know that something is wrong. Don't leave a horrible review. review. Reach out so we can fix it. We've gone above and beyond to stay afloat during COVID-19 and so excited to see you all again, re-employ our staff and create experiences together. We'd love to help each other out as this is new territory for everyone, but we're doing everything the best to navigate through it together. 
and that's mm. a comment they've made. They've said, you know, one one line that finishes the most annoying thing is people that have a whinge and have only seen ten minutes of your day. True, Judge Duvaskaya. I I agree with everything you you've just said, and and I, I like what they've said. I don't like the title because for me there's a disconnect. They are they are saying exactly what I just said before. They are informing their customers on what is happening to them. They're saying we're going through difficult times. These new regulations are new to us. We are not comfortable with them yet. We don't know how it's going to work out. It might be complicated. You might be stuck for three hours outside of a red lobster on Mother's Day. You, there's <laughs> a, a million things, but they are being transparent and they're informing and they're just asking people to be conscious of that and to not just jump on their phone and be uh, internet uh, warriors and, and, and point at the, the things that don't go well. But the title says, slams customers leaving horrible reviews. I think the title yeah. is clickbait. clickbait That's because they're, they're not slamming anyone. They're, they're informing, um, which, which I like. I think it's, it's very healthy to, to do that. And, and there is, uh, admittedly, and we've all been experiencing this in our professional lives, that you have customers who come and they, they stay half an hour. They had a problem. They didn't talk to anyone. They leave. And then they, they post a three-pager on, online saying how shitty your restaurant was. That doesn't help number, anyone. The number one thing, isn't it, that when it's never brought to the restaurant staff's attention. Exactly. How fair is that? Right. And, and that's the yeah. service industry is, is, is doomed or plagued by that because we are under such scrutiny and you have to be perfect every time, every day, every minute of the day. And the minute you slip, well, now you have TripAdvisor, Yelp, and, and you name them. Uh, and people feel empowered to say, oh, this was shit. And again, a lot of, and it's basic education. I would never say this was shit. I would say I didn't like it, or this was not to my liking, or this was not to my standards. But to say that something is shit is very, uh, it, it reduces it to, to nothing. It's very reductive. So I agree with their statements. I don't agree with the, uh, with the, the tagline or the, yeah, Chandler, any Lamb. thoughts from you? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm pretty in line with Sebastian on that one because I don't have any problem with people leaving negative reviews. Honestly, as long as they're warranted, um, it can be a tool to help a restaurant build, but only if they've brought it up to to some member of the team. Um, yeah, it's not a fair thing to never make a restaurant or any kind of F&B um, outlet. It's not fair to not make them aware of a problem and then report it. You know, what, what can we do if, if we don't know what's going on? But is that an educating thing? Like, how do you get that through to people? Like, because that's, how do you make people comfortable enough to say, you know what, I'm going to... But it's, going, it's, it's, edu I think it's education. It's education. It's it's how to give feedback, and and how to to how to criticize. Um, and if we work in an industry, I mean, the food and beverage industry, it's also so subjective, because 
you're talking about food and service and everyone has a different version of what a good dish is, what something, uh, what a good taste is and what good service is. Everyone has a different opinion. And I have two really quick anecdotes on this. Um, and it's really a stupid example. I mean, the, the first one is a very stupid example. So when we were, when the last hotel I worked in, in Bangkok, the, the Siam Kempinski, we were very fortunate to be able to uh, organize the gala dinner for the launch of the Michelin Guide in Thailand. That was back in 2017. And for some, I'm going to say stupid reason, one of the sponsors of the event was a water company. And they provided still and sparkling water. And for some reason, because they wanted their, I don't know, they wanted to be extra fancy, they had asked us to serve their sparkling water in champagne flutes. So and imagine this huge ballroom with uh, 40 tables, 400 guests. You have the basically the top of the food industry in that one room of Bangkok. And your waiters are serving sparkling water and champagne flutes. And I have F&B directors from other hotels coming to me and saying, hey, dude, I, I don't want to be an asshole, but I think, is wrong is wrong. With you? I think something is wrong with your team. They're, they just served sparkling water in my champagne flute. And I have to apologize and say, well, sorry, this, this is the directive I got from the sponsor. I can't do anything about it. So again, uh, the, the point is everyone has uh, an idea of what is good service. So in this case, champagne flute is for champagne. And if something deviates from that, you don't think about, huh, why is that? You automatically assume it's wrong. The other uh, anecdote I wanted to say is something that Chandler told me a, a long time ago. So for those who don't know, Chandler and, and I have worked together for the best part of two years in, in the same group in Bangkok. And one of the things we did a lot were, were food tastings. And, and it was very often that Chandler would be more than any of other chef in the group would be on, on, on cooking duty to, to prepare a tasting menu. Sometimes it was not a tasting menu, but it was labeled as a tasting menu. Um, and I asked him when they said, aren't you tired of, of getting comments and, and, and critiques all the time of all the food that you're doing? And Chandler very philosophically said, I don't mind too much the comments as long as they're valid and they're constructive. I'm not really interested in, to, in knowing if a guest liked it or didn't like it because flavors and tastes are subjective. Each one has their own preference. I'm more interested in how easy was it to eat the food. So again, it, it all really depends and, and people need to learn how to give feedback. That's, that's the bottom line for me. Good couple of points there. Um, I, I mean, I agree, uh, agree wholeheartedly in what you had to say. Um, I, I don't know. I, I think there is also that, I mean, I think you're going to have half the population that are very much um, open to be educated and comfortable to give feedback. But then there is a, equally another half that likes to want to be somebody that gets to call out and start trending and or be the person that sets something's trending. And, you know, nowadays you see a lot of negative things trending anyway, um, unfortunately. But 
uh, yeah, I, I think it's, it's a good couple of points. Um, thank you, Judge. I might call on you next time when we have some hot points like that, but I think we will come back to Chandler. Chandler, last week we had a chat, Sebastian and I, about our five most overrated and five most underrated ingredients. I think uh, just for the for today, I'd love to hear what your ingredients are. I'd just like to see if there was any crossover between what you think um, is an overrated ingredient and what we may have already had as well, or is it? You know, it is, if there's a common theme, I hope pink salt is not in there. But okay, <laughs> okay. Um, all right. So you're not going to tell me any of your ingredients first. I'm okay. going in blind. Huh? Yeah. Okay. Well, if you listen to our podcast, you'd know what they are. <laughs> I didn't even know this thing existed, man. You, <laughs> you need a you need a PR team. He's going to do a Hisham and look it up two months from now. <laughs> Sebastian, I'll see if I can get Sophie on uh, promoting this. Uh, why not? I'm sure she's not very busy at the moment. I don't think so. Okay, okay. Um, back to the matter at hand. All right, so the number one for me, I think my list is pretty skewed from having lived in Thailand the past five goddamn years. Yeah. Yeah. Um, can you go five to one, please? Yeah, uh, let's. Okay, you want me to? Actually, it was just the first on my list. I physically wrote this down. Okay, yeah, yeah. But um, all right, I'll, I'll pick something maybe less impactful. Um, less so impure. Lobster. Um, okay. lobster is not an ingredient which I am totally enamored with. Um, I happen to really like the flavor of like a good lobster stock, uh, but if we're talking about like a steamed you know, 450 gram lobster with clarified butter, not my thing. Okay. Interestingly, interestingly, that that was actually on my honorable mentions for top five. But more interestingly, I had a chat with another chef friend of mine called Sean, and he said the exact same thing you said. He yeah. likes the shells, but he isn't much into the meat. He finds the meat is overrated. Yeah, I agree. And if I can make a nice sauce and puree in the roe and the tamale, and yeah, I think it's it's a beautiful ingredient. But um, yeah. nah, the meat specifically, not not so exciting. I'd much rather a really nice prawn. I love shellfish, don't get me wrong. Crab is maybe my favorite animal protein on the planet. Um, I know that's a pretty w wide category, but still. But yeah, lobster meat, not my favorite. Okay. okay. Okay, um, next, this is going a bit out of of the Western food, but hey, how many billion Chinese people are on this planet? 1.6, 1.7? Many. Something like that. Uh, yeah. My next is sea cucumber. Oh. <laughs> um, I don't know if you're very familiar with sea cucumber, if you've eaten it many times, but... Uh, not so interesting to me. And there is a massive demand. If you look at the Chinese market for this ingredient, it's, um, it's really on a, on a pedestal. But is uh, it in the, it makes you strong category of ingredients? I, that's what they say about everything, right? I mean, yes. ground tiger paws to porcupine needles. I don't, I don't know what. So I, I have a, a funny anecdote on this one very quickly. I never ate sea cucumber 
for the sole reason that when I was just out of high school, I did a four-month um, dive master course in Egypt. On the, on sure, the I think, on I the, think you're going to go say the exact same thing I was going to say as well, but go, go ahead. I know what you're going to say. And Egypt, for some reason, the Red Sea is full of sea cucumber. And they and use them for flashlights. No, they sell... <laughs> well, they sell huge quantities. I mean, there's, there's entire villages that are just living on sea cucumbers because they sell them to the Chinese market. And there's a whole category of divers in Egypt. They don't know how to write or read, but they know how to dive for sea cucumbers. And the big game, obviously, is to go down, grab one, and wank it until it ejaculates underwater. <laughs> it, it spurts this kind of white, cloudy liquid when it's in danger or when it's manipulated. And so I've seen this too many times to say, hmm, why don't I try to see cucumber next time? So really, I wasn't so far off. No, not far off. <laughs> I, I, I remember seeing it when I was diving in Seychelles and it just looks like a giant turd underwater. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And a turd that ejaculates. Yeah, and it's a freaky looking thing too because it's not moving. It just kind of sits Lies there. there. Yeah, even like a giant caterpillar. And right. yeah, it's it's just not the most. Yeah, you give it gives you the heebie-jeebies. <laughs> but it's it's processed. I mean, it's when once it's out of the water, they dry it up and then they make a powder out of it and then they sell it to the Chinese. Isn't fish mouth pretty much the same though? Well, fish mouth is. I happen to like fish mouth actually. It's good. Really? Oh, yeah. It's it's the swim bladder, right? Um, yeah. Typically of these large fish, but and I like that one. And this is the thing about a lot of like super expensive Chinese ingredients; they're very textural, um, mm. like the sea cucumber, which the way I've had it, it's been often sun-dried and then braised and stuffed with pork and then braised again. And it just ends up being this like jellied coating for your ground pork in the in whatever application you're eating it with, um, which doesn't do it for me. But the fish maw, I think, is cool. It has almost the texture of that like uh, that bamboo fungus, you know, the white, the yep. white yeah. fungus that will yep. go into yeah. Chinese soups. I find them kind of analogous. I like the fish maw. Yep. Okay. Okay. Um, in the Number. same category, I had this with a with a slash was shark fin. Yeah. I've only ever eaten shark fin once, and besides the moral objections of which I have many, um, it's just not very fucking good. <laughs> it's another yeah. one that it just it's it's cartilage. It's you know, it tastes yeah. like. Tastes very gelatinous in a heavy chicken broth, and the fact that we're killing millions of sharks every year for it is pretty ridiculous. But it gives you power. Gives you power. Sort of the pills outside of Sukhumvit Soy Four, and maybe they can just <laughs> focus on that. The Superman pills. Okay, should well, we do one more? Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, next is Beyond Meat products, or these. Oh. Um, <laughs> any of these sort of imitation meat. And this goes all the way back to my pescatarian mother cooking soy bacon in the microwave, um, you know, more than 20 years ago now. And 
I have no problems with the vegetarians or vegans. I was actually pescatarian myself for a long time. And I just think that there's this staggering abundance of, um, of plant options, which you can eat. So to mimic meat is just pointless and silly. Uh, so beyond meat, not a fan. So that you put the incredible possible burger and everything in that category. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm very happy if if a vegetarian person wants to eat a grilled portobello sandwich, which you know is maybe a bit dated now, but instead of a carnivore eating a burger, I think that's great. But, but isn't that is that product not really targeted at vegetarians and vegans? I thought that product. I mean, I would say that product is targeted at meat eaters is it i don't really know i I would think because i thought what they they're trying to move towards is because i think if you're a well if you're a vegetarian and you want to eat something that looks like a burger tastes like a burger bleeds like a burger then you probably shouldn't be a vegetarian But if you're a meat eater and you can convince meat eaters, listen, you can eat this, you can get all the same, you know, you'd get 90% of the same experience, you get the same textures, you get somewhat nearly the same flavors. And you know what? You, it's good, you can be happy in the fact that you're, you know, not eating meat. I, I was I would always think all these plant-based proteins are targeted at flexitarians or meat eaters more so than vegetarians or ve- definitely not vegans because I, I mean ve- okay let's take vegans out because vegans are completely different but vegetarians I don't know I mean are vegetarians really going geez I wish I could eat a burger or something like a burger I, I, you know I don't agree Hisham. I I'm- no. Why is that? I have conflicting point of views on this. The first one being, I was I was raised in a very open minded environment, and so whatever you want to do, go for it. I have no problems if eating eating vegetables that look and taste like meat makes you happy, go for it. But at the same time, I also believe there is an order in nature. And if meat tastes like the meat and vegetables taste like vegetables, maybe there's a reason. And trying to make up one for another, that is, for me, it, it, it's, it's nonsense. But it's evolution, Sebastian. No. It's evolution. <laughs> no. It's, yeah, we also it's don't engineered know. evolution. It's not natural evolution. Like we, we've also come a long way. We don't go around throwing stones at lions and eating them. Maybe we should. <laughs> Maybe not in your neighborhood. <laughs> hey, I, I want to come back on one thing that Heshan said. Did you use the word flexitarian? Yes. What? That, I'm not familiar with that. What the hell is that? This so is like, it's, it's, it's another a, way of saying a, a normal person. No, <laughs> no it's, it's, it's a term used for people that want to that are meat eaters but also want to kind of would like to have more vegetarian of a vegetarian diet. Um, so they kind of flex between the two, right? Guilty meat I, eaters. 
Yes, and I guess plant-based proteins take that guilt away. Okay, you know, and I, I I'm a big fan of plant-based proteins actually. So you know, um, so wait, 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 wait. But, but I'm also a big fan of plant-based protein. Don't get me wrong. How can you be a big fan? <laughs> wait, wait, wait. No, no, no. I'm not a fan. Of this oh, no, you're not a fan. What are you? <laughs> disguising plants. I'm not, I'm not a fan of disguising plant-based protein into something that it's not. I'm not a fan of, of making this plant-based protein look, feel, and taste like meat. Right. Because it's not meat. So yeah, that's I'm, I'm a big fan of, of beans and quinoa too, but I'm clearly not a fan of the Beyond Burger. Okay, you have to understand. Like back in the day, remember that I, I think when you said, um, "What is it?" The soy bacon was it? right, mm-hmm. right. So that was the day they used to have this product called mock chicken and mock beef, right? And I remember it was like it was soy products that was or made to pretend that it was meat, and it was really, really bad, right? right. <laughs> and course. I think that it's was not chicken. And, and it's not bacon. We had yeah, the at, the tofurkey in the US. There you go. <laughs> oh my God! What a name! <laughs> and I think that now, and I think like, and I and I give all credit to incre- uh, Impossible Meats for this, right? It's an incredible now. Hey, it's an incredible achievement. I mean, it, it is, and it's amazing. I mean, let's be honest. I mean, th- what they say about meat cultivation and all the environmental impacts and all that yeah you have to take it seriously I'm, i mean i'm not i don't want to come across a bit like the thing is the people that are out there preaching this are a bit too radical right and they don't help their cause because they're out there like there's no there's no middle ground with the people that um talk about uh, animal welfare and you know the environmental impact of you know breeding cattle and animals for meat um, because there's no middle ground and there's no real soft approach they really kind of dram in the fact that you know if you're eating meat you are uh, the uh, you know the worst thing in you know in in humankind and and that, that's always going to get people up and uh, against you however you know those people will never eat an impossible burger because what it stands for a burger isn't probably you know isn't what they believe in but if i was to go out and you know not to say that you know i'd choose if if i felt like a burger i'd go for a burger but i think also sometimes you know people are a bit self-conscious and they want to worry you know they worry about their health and they may want to reduce their meat uh, intake and right now the only things there are are beans and quinoa if you don't want to eat meat, you've got vegetables, beans, and quinoa. And let's okay, and let's be honest, quinoa and beans, you need to have some kind of culinary understanding to execute one of those dishes, right? To make it really nice. Yeah, or you have to wrong. watch it. You have to watch Jamie Oliver YouTube, or you know, um, you have to watch somebody's technique on how to cook a quinoa dish. Because quinoa needs a lot of flavor to carry it. Even beans, right? I mean. Anytime you think of beans, you think of it in a can, and you know that's not what you, people want to eat. So, um, 
I think that these kind of burgers and sausages and, you know, this there's this thing. I had this thing a while ago called not chicken. And it tasted like chicken, but it wasn't chicken, right? And you kind of go, well, you know, but you you have the same. And remember, there's. I would say now there are less people that know how to cook than there were ten years ago. Because back in the day, learning how to cook was some kind like it was something that you know, it, it was something that was passed on from generation to generation. I think that art's going away, and this kind of convenience food where you know, you, or you, everyone kind of knows how to. You know, generally cooking a burger is pretty basic because it's just putting it on a grill or in a pan and just heating it up. And then the rest is just your salad component and your bread component. I think it's kind of designed for that lazy cook, realistically. You know, um, there is, uh, you know, vegetarian cheese. And I had that. And, you know, is a great, no, it's still that it's because it's still, you know, plant based protein. 0.1 you know and i think when version 2 version 3 version 4 comes out and i think impossible is probably at version 2 um i think when they get to version 3 it's going to be and, and i understand where both of you are coming from like you know if it's bleeding like meat if it smells like meat if it's supposed to taste like meat why don't you just eat meat you know and, and i agree with that but i also think that i don't think they're targeting vegetarians and vegans i think they're targeting meat eaters to reduce their meat intake and, but, and flexitarians. I think it's it's not helping what you just said. It's not helping. We're we're making it even more easy for people to learn less about what they're eating. We're giving them we, we're creating needs. We're giving them things that they're like, oh yeah, you know what? I like beef, but I would like to limit my meat intake but i really like the taste of beef so what if i could eat beef but it's actually well instead of trying to research on how to cook vegetables properly he's gonna buy this 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 one size fits all solution for me it's like, it's like crab sticks crab sticks have absolutely zero crab in it crab sticks yeah yeah i agree and, with you i agree with you and, and I, I, I'm sorry, uh, for me, if you, and we've had many conversations about this with Chandler, where we don't believe that vegetarian food should be only boiled broccoli and steamed vegetables. There's a lot of better ways to prepare vegan food. But it, of course, it, it takes more effort and, and more research. And to give people what they want is not always a good thing. And to make up something into something else, for me, that's not natural. It's not proper. I think another issue with this sort, like specifically the the Beyond Meat and the Impossible Burger, um, is that you know, nobody ever said it was healthy. You know, they call it an alternative. But these companies themselves, they make the point not to call it like a, a health food. But yeah, because yeah. of the um, image it carries, people automatically assume, oh, I mean, it's not beef. It must be healthy, which yeah, it's yeah. not. It's not a, a healthy food source, um, which is kind of neither here nor there. But it's another reason why I'm not so so into this sort of thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <sighs> well, I think we've come to the end, Sebastian and Chandler. 
You've done a great Eddie Barbo, by the way, Kevin. Uh, I appreciate it. For a person that doesn't know who Eddie Bravo is, I think... Uh, I'm going to look him up. <laughs> but um, otherwise, thank you for joining the call today. And uh, thank you, Sebastian, as always. Right, wait, real back. quick. Real quick. Okay. Brioche buns and super fatty beef. Those are my last two. There we go. Ah, ah yeah, by the way, what by the way, what was the one that you said it's because you've been living in Thailand it infectuate it it if what was that ingredient? Lobster, was it? Uh, no. Honestly, it, it's probably those last two specifically are the brioche buns and very fatty wagyu beef. Oh well oh. yeah. I mean those are just king here. Everybody wants to put every goddamn sandwich on a brioche bun, um, which more often than not doesn't work and the whole fatty beef thing don't even get me started because we'll go another 30 minutes but um it's it's when we had the talk with Ashan about our five most overrated and five most underrated there was a whole category of items from both sides that had to do particularly with the restaurant scene in bangkok um, oh, naturally because we were talking about ingredients that are added on menus just to pump up the prices and the value right and the lobster goes into that category we had foie gras as well in there uh truffle oil and, and abalone abalone uh, yeah so all of these things that are seen as premium and people just throw king crab. everything yeah king crab no so. okay thank you everyone Thank you, Chandler, for for being here. It's Thanks for having nice me, guys. Always nice to have you on the line. You're always welcome. Don't yes. Always welcome. Always welcome. Yeah, well, when uh, when one of your guests shoots you down, you can call me at the last minute. I'll be here. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, everyone. See you all next week. Have a good night. See you, guys. Bye.